welcome. Pull up a seat, grab a cup, and get ready to share, listen, and learn. This is my favorite coffee story with your host, Aniko Samoji. You'll hear about the stories about coffee itself, the history, health benefits, recipes, and more, along with some personal stories inspired by coffee and the lifestyle. Now, here is Aniko Somoji. Welcome to my favorite coffee story. Oh, we're so glad to welcome you, friends all around the world. And I feel like you're here with us at Anikona Farm. So a big hello to you in Ireland and China and Austin, Texas and Seattle and Los Angeles. And just so thrilled you're here, San Francisco. So a big hello to you and also on the East Coast. And we have an amazing show. I'm so excited to introduce our wonderful guest. And um, we're talking about the berry with another spirit today. And before I introduce our wonderful guest, we have our Anikona Farm moment. So a lot going on on the farm. We just picked up a beautiful freshly roasted coffee from the Halualoa Kona Coffee Mill. And I had a lot of orders for our friends over there at Puna Chocolate. They include our coffee in their shops, one in Hilo and Chicago. And so I was really thankful to be able to provide them some fresh coffee. So that was really fun. And we tasted the roast and it it turned out well, thanks to the master roaster G there at Halualoa Kona Coffee Mill. And she does a great job. We air roast our coffee so we can let, let that beautiful Kona taste, the flavors of the lava come through in our coffee. So we're so excited. The other thing that's been going on at Anikona Farm, of course, we love sharing the farm. And we've had friends here on the farm, our cousin from San Jose, California. We've been having such a nice time together and big farm breakfasts breakfast here at Anikona Farm. And of course, we just had our wonderful friends join us from Washington, D.C. today and um, share coffee and fun stories. So I'm so glad that they came over today. That was just wonderful. So let's talk about the berry with another spirit. And we have Dr. Molly E. Cummings joining us. She's a biology professor at the University of Texas, and she's also co-owner of District Distilling Company that's in Washington, D.C., and she she brings her field and biological expertise to the craft of foraging juniper berries for an award-winning gin. And we're so glad you're joining us today, Dr. Molly. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, so wonderful. So so we're glad you're joining us from Austin, Texas, and we can't wait to hear all about what you're working on, et cetera. And we thought we'd maybe start out with some of your early days in your career and your growing up days and maybe some family times. Please share with us. Oh, wow. Where to begin? Um, Well, so I grew up in Wisconsin, um, and that's a pretty outdoorsy kind of state. You're you're very much encouraged to play outdoors all seasons long. Um, And so uh, myself and my five other siblings, we were outdoorsy types. Um, And I carried that on uh, to college and kind of got involved and very interested in understanding nature and therefore kind of pursued a biological uh, degree um, in part because of uh, being able to take classes that involved literally jumping into nature. So jumping in underwater, spending a whole summer 
scuba diving down in Monterey Bay, which was amazing. Oh, and certainly, yes, set the course for um, pursuing and trying to understand the mysteries of nature. Oh, that's so amazing. And with all your siblings, that's incredible. So then how did you decide to attend Stanford University? Um, I was lucky. I got in. (laughs) So um, I knew growing up in Wisconsin, I wanted to explore other states. And so I applied to a number of colleges on the East Coast. And then I applied. I heard this strange rumor that Stanford liked student athletes, and I was a very active athlete in high school, played a number of different sports, and so I thought, well, maybe I fit there, so I applied to Stanford and went uh, on a college tour of the East Coast and um, felt, um, I don't want to offend anyone on the East Coast, but some of the schools I visited um, (laughs) had more of an aristocratic air to them, and so when I visited Stanford, it, it it didn't have that air, and I thought, okay, I can belong here. And clearly, in, in California, you can play outdoors all the time. So that had a large appeal. Absolutely. And in springtime, when Lake Lagunita fills up there, it just adds this whole beautiful element to the Stanford campus, which is so fun. What were some of your favorite classes, Dr. Molly? Oh, whew. well, most of them involved the ocean. So I remember taking a geology of the oceans class and we got to do these field trips going up to uh, San Francisco Bay and north of San Francisco Bay and visit different beaches and down to Monterey Bay. And in that, through that class, I was, became aware of the Marine Summer Program um, that uh, Stanford University sponsors at Hopkins Marine Station in Monterey Bay or uh, more formally Pacific Grove, California. And this is a course, and I want to make sure this gets out on the radio, because it's not exclusive to Stanford University students. It's open to students around the nation. It even is open to high school students around the nation. And it truly changed the course of my life, because this particular course, it was called Subtitle Ecology. And you would, uh, the morning class, you would go scuba diving, and the TA would have a slate of all the scientific uh, names of all the different creatures and plants uh, that you might encounter underwater, and they would simply point to an organism and then point to its scientific name. So that was morning class. And then you'd get out, you'd warm up, you'd have lunch, and then in the afternoon you would have a lecture on one of the 35 different phyla or the life forms you find underwater, And then you'd have a lab where you would dissect and get to know these particular life forms up close and personal. And I absolutely fell in love with being in the underwater environment. It was so foreign. It was like visiting another planet. And the underwater uh, natural world was just so gorgeous to me that I wanted to understand it more. And so from that point forward, I planned my course of classes, um, as well as plan to do uh, subsequent postgraduate studies in the field of marine ecology and eventually evolutionary biology. Oh, that's such an amazing journey, uh, Molly. Yeah. And you must have also had some pretty amazing uh, university, Stanford University coffee stories by chance. 
I actually I do. It's it's funny. I didn't really grow up drinking coffee at, at home, um, but I was introduced to it at Stanford, and it was at the coffee house or the Coho, which uh, they call it on campus. And that's where I started drinking coffee, like most people do, to stay up late and study. Um, but I, I was such a wimp, I had to start with the sweet coffees <laughs> and uh, fill it with all sorts of various flavored creams. But the beauty of this, the coffee house on Stanford campus is that it often would bring in musicians. And so I actually saw a number of great musicians there. Um, I'm, I'm definitely dating myself, but I remember seeing the Indigo <laughs> Girls there in their little coffee house before they ever made it big. So that's, I think, a beautiful thing about coffee. It mixes really well with music. They're both beautiful stimulants, and so they mix quite well together. That is so true. And then you ventured over to Australia and did some post-grad work there. Um, That must have been an amazing experience. What was some of your research there that you did, Molly? So I chose to go over to, and first I should definitely point out that I was very fortunate to go to Australia um, as part of a Rotary International um, scholarship. Um, Rotary International is a wonderful uh, nonprofit, um, and they support uh, young ambassadors around the world. And so I applied for this program to further my um, uh, graduate or research um, studies into marine ecology, marine biology, and they sponsored... uh, my education there, which was wonderful. And part of the reason why I chose to go to Australia, I went specifically to James Cook University in North Queensland. And I selected that university because it was very focused on understanding organismal biology. Um, Many universities, Stanford is no exception. The biology program focuses, uh, is geared a little bit towards pre-med, which is wonderful. And the medical profession is I'm so indebted to it but I knew I could never be a a medical doctor because I'm a blood phobe I kind of faint around blood (laughs) (laughs) so that profession made no sense for me Um, but I didn't I I was hungry for more organismal biology so I wanted to um, round out my excellent education from Stanford University with further classes and coursework and lab work at a a program that really focused on organismal biology. So that's why I selected James Cook University, and I took a number of different classes, um, all focused on organismal biology. And it was there again where I took a class that once more altered the course of my life because I took a a class called Tropical Ichthyology, which is the study of the biology of fish um, in the tropics. And about midway through, there was a a midterm paper assignment, and there was a number of topics you could select from, and one of them was the color of fishes. And I'd always been fascinated with all the bright, beautiful colors underwater. And so here was an opportunity to read um, more into it, and I could not stop reading about this topic. And I remember thinking to myself that if I ever went to get a PhD, I wanted to be as excited about this topic Um, because it got me up in the morning and I was just uh, insatiable in terms of trying to find more knowledge and information about it. So it was there and reading about different professors' research in this area that I decided to pursue a PhD 
And in fact, I pursued a PhD with one of the authors of the papers I kept reading about the color of fishes. <laughs> so oh, I returned gosh. to the U.S. and yeah, it implied to do a PhD with this person. And well, Dr. Molly, I hope you'll come visit us here in Hawaii, and we can share some good underwater time and look at those beautiful colors and of fish. So you ventured then to do your PhD at the University of Santa Barbara. Tell us a little bit about that experience, please. Well, it was like going from one beautiful paradise in Australia to another beautiful paradise in California. It's a pretty gorgeous campus. Um, if For those of you who are listening who've ever had the good fortune to visit, it is spectacular. It sits out on the peninsula in Isla Vista, California, which is right adjacent to Santa Barbara. And the campus literally sits in the interior of this peninsula, but on the edge of campus is this beautiful um, beach. And so it, uh, there's a bit of a cliff to the beach, but you can see the water from most vantage points in, on campus, and you can see the surf. And so uh, not coincidentally, uh, or, uh, you see that lots of surfers go to this campus, <laughs> which is a little yes. ironic because in some ways you have first-rate graduate schools, um, graduate students who are super serious and, and studying all the time. And then you do have very serious undergraduates, but you have a component of very serious surfing undergraduates. <laughs> <laughs> so it makes for a good mix on campus, I think. Definitely. Oh, that's so fun. What a nice balance and what a beautiful place to go to school. So as you're attending the University of Santa Barbara and you're doing your PhD and it sounds like, did you then pursue research in um, projects relating to ecology and evolution and marine biology or animal behavior, communication traits? Please tell us. Right, exactly. So as I mentioned before, I, I initially fell in love with just understanding the underwater world, and I thought that that meant um, studying strictly marine biology. But when I realized the real passion um, that really drove me was understanding patterns of diversity, that's really studying evolution. And so I did a PhD that focused on understanding patterns of diversity of color in fish. And so... I chose a group of fish that uh, evolved um, with the kelp forest in, along the Pacific coast in North America. These are called the surf birch. You can find them in California and Oregon and Washington State. And they evolved in this really uh, variable and unique optical environment. The light underwater is um, quite different than the light above water. Um, it interacts with the water molecules in unique ways. So the water molecule is going to absorb some wavelengths more than others. And then in the kelp forest, life gets even more complex because you have a canopy of the kelp itself that is absorbing and filtering some light. And then you have a hugely productive uh, water column with phytoplankton and zooplankton, which are also interacting with the light in, in unique ways. So these fish have evolved a communication system that is driven by visual signals in one of the most variable light environments on Earth. So I was curious how they managed to do this and what were their uh, design properties. And so to tackle this question, I, I got to go scuba diving a lot and measure the light in all these different habitats. 
And then I measured their visual pigments. So I um, did a lot of visual physiology, collected their retina, measured the absorption spectra of their different photoreceptor classes, and then used different visual modeling techniques to figure out uh, what kind of sensory biases they had. Oh, and Dr. Bali, incredible. It was, it was huge fun and very satisfying because then by those, um, by understanding their visual system and knowing what they needed to uh, detect their food target in their specific environment, I could predict the sensory bias across the different species. And that predicted the variation in their color patterns. So instead, in, in addition to just being in awe of all this beauty out there, we now can actually make um, a better understanding of the variation we see. And it's a very predictable direction that these fish have evolved their colors in. Oh, and we can't wait to talk a little bit more about um, conspicuous signals um, about animals and their camouflage and more about your teaching at the University of Texas and about the Cummings Lab right after the break. So we've been so enjoying chatting with you, Dr. Molly. And listeners, please join us as we come back and we'll talk a little bit more about um, all the good things that Dr. Molly is researching at the University of Texas. Please join us. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. My favorite coffee story is brought to you by Anikona Farm, where every bean we grow represents a great story somewhere in the world. When you buy coffee from Anikona Farm, you're investing in new memories, stories, and experiences. We harvest our beans with your future story in our heart. So from our heart to yours... Enjoy the Anikona experience. May your coffee story be as rich and delicious as our Kona coffee with love. Please visit Anikona.com and get your Anikona Story coffee special today. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvind Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. You are listening to My Favorite Coffee Story with Aniko Samoji. Drop us a line and share your story. Our email address is orders at anikona.com. Again, that's orders at anikona.com. Now, back to this week's show. 
Welcome back to My Favorite Coffee Story. We're having such a nice time with Dr. Molly Cummings, who's a biology professor at the University of Texas. We were just talking a little bit about uh, Dr. Molly's uh, background, her university studies, how she became involved in marine biology. And we were just about to ask uh, Molly about what it's like teaching at the University of Texas and being a professor there and also running the Cummings Lab. Molly, tell us about your favorite elements of being a professor. Wow. Well, there's so many of them, and they work well together. Um, It's certainly very exciting and invigorating being a professor because you get to be around young minds all the time, and you get to try to not only educate them but inspire them. And particularly in today's digital world, I feel that it's a very important message that I try to inspire young people to pay attention to nature and study it and wonder about it. And so I actually, um, the courses I Mm -hmm. teach uh, deal with animal behavior. And so it's really easy to take that topic and inspire people to wonder about the complexities and the mysteries of nature. So in terms of my teaching load, I absolutely love it. And then I get to blend that with doing primary research in the field of animal behavior. And sometimes that's basic research, just asking questions about why and how animals do what they do or why they look the way they look. Um, But sometimes that even can actually serve an application purpose that helps uh, our society, such as helping the U.S. Navy understand basic principles involved in camouflage by studying evolution's solution to the problem in fish. That's so interesting. I I think it's fascinating, Molly, that you're working on research about animal mate choice response. Mm -hmm. How's that going there at the university? Yes, so it's been my own evolution of research topics. So I, as you mentioned before, we were talking about before, I was very interested in predicting patterns of color across fish. But when you think about that, at the root of how fish evolve certain colors, many times it's driven by this process in evolution called sexual selection. So developing signals that the opposite sex finds attractive. And so more often than not, females might be making those kind of choices and males have to evolve a very colorful signal or a very salient signal that attracts females. And so I became more and more interested in going beyond the visual system and going into the brain to figure out how females are making those choices. And I have to say I'm very fortunate to be a biologist interested in these questions at this point in time because we have these wonderful tools to start asking those questions. We have wonderful next generation uh, genomic type of tools that allow us to expose fish to different behavioral settings and um, making different mate choice decisions and then we can actually capture that fish, apologize and take out its brain and then see which genes were expressed in which pathways and which part of the brain was active. And by doing that, we can start building a model of social decision-making. And we can do this with organisms that are distantly related to us, but share some of the same neural pathways. So we can learn a lot about our own decision-making processes by studying a simpler organism like a fish, who, by the way, was the first vertebrate on the planet to evolve a brain. So... 
It's, right. Uh, I think very useful for us to look at other animals besides ourselves to learn more about ourselves. Oh, yes. It's so relevant. I'm curious if you by chance still recall a favorite professor or mentor, either at Stanford or the University of Santa Barbara, that really inspired you and you still keep in touch with or you have a good cup of coffee with once in a while. Is there a mentor <laughs> that you, that oh, you might yes. have? There are, there are quite a few. Uh, from Stanford down at Hopkins Marine Station, Mark Denny was a wonderful mentor. Um, I have to point out that while I did an undergrad at Stanford and at Hopkins Marine Station, I actually returned to Stanford's Hopkins Marine Station to conduct my PhD research. So while I was getting a PhD at UC Santa Barbara, I spent 50% of my oh, six and a half years up at in Pacific Grove. And so Mark Denny was a wonderful mentor who actually adopted me into his lab and we would have coffee and chat and discuss philosophy (laughs) (laughs) among biomechanics and other topics. Um, My PhD mentor from UC Santa Barbara was, was 100% wonderful. Um, Dr. John Endler, who has guided me through science and and certainly got me on my way in becoming a a doctor of philosophy and biological sciences. Um, He actually now works in Australia uh, but we definitely keep in touch. And when we would be in California, I, we would catch up over coffee for sure. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. So now being in Austin, Texas, and your life there, and being a professor at the University of Texas, and of course, appreciating your mentors at the other universities, UC Santa Barbara and Stanford, etc. And you run your Cummings Lab, and I know your students so appreciate you and all the research that you do. Living in Austin, Texas, I know you have some fun things sometimes you like to do on the weekends, like forage for (laughs) juniper berries, depending on the time of year, for gin. So uh, that's how we kind of themed this show, Molly, The Berry with Another Spirit, which I, I thought was a really fun idea. And thank you for that title. How, when are you going to start foraging again? What's the best time to be out there? So, great question. Um, start foraging in mid to late summer. And it's interesting. I've been doing this, I'm coming up on my fourth year, and I'm like a good naturalist biologist. I'm taking wonderful field notes, and I'm noticing different patterns and how, it, how the ripeness of the fruit is linked to the rainfall and temperature. And so I'm thinking I need to come out even earlier this coming summer. I'll start in mid-July just to make sure I'm not missing anything. And uh, why I have to actually travel to do this, they don't live in Austin, or at least the berries of interest don't live in Austin. Um, There is a juniper berry that's very prevalent in Austin, Texas but it does not make for good gin. It is the mountain okay. cedar or the, the ash juniper. And we've tried it, and it tastes terrible. So <laughs> if anyone in Austin is listening, don't even bother. But where I go to collect the more interesting berries, the berries with really unique spirits, um, I travel west, and I head out uh, beyond Sonora and towards the Davis Mountains. And... One of the berries that produces a really unique uh, gin um, flavor for our gins is the red berry juniper. 
And that um, ripens earlier in the season, um, late summer, early fall. And it is a, a juniper that, you know, I'm a biologist. I had to actually look it up to make sure it was a juniper because it's red. Most people never associate a red berry with a juniper. The, if you look up right. juniper berry on the web, you'll see something blue or green, but you won't see something red. And here in Texas, we have a really unique, wonderfully tasting um, juniper um, called the red berry. And we highlight that in one of our gins. That's fantastic. So red berry junipers, that grows in maybe the area at Fort Davis, Texas. Is that right? Yes, it starts growing around Sonora towards Fort Davis and into the Davis Mountains. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, and it's I underst- a geographically constrained, but locally yes. abundant. It's perfect for someone like me. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I understand, so, Molly, that sometimes when you do that drive from Austin, you might have your cup of coffee as you're driving out there to pick those perfect red berry junipers. Is that right? Oh, yes. I don't only have one cup of coffee. I usually load up a good thermos (laughs) or two (laughs) for the road. (laughs) That's so fun. Well, it sounds like with your biology background and all that you've done in your field and your biological expertise, you can really channel in, you know, channel that into the craft of foraging junipers and produ- producing this award-winning gin. So then you you share some of the red berry junipers that you've picked with your friends and colleagues over at District Distilling Company in Washington, D.C. Please tell us a little bit about District Distilling and um, a little bit about the team, please. Oh, absolutely. I'd be glad to because, um, well, the team involves... Um, First of all, our distiller, uh, Matthew Strickland, he's an amazing distiller. He's also, he has the heart of a, of a mad scientist, so I really appreciate him. He loves <laughs> being very creative, and he's just very meticulous about details. So as a scientist, I really appreciate that feature yes. in him as well. So Matt Strickland came to us from Corsair Distillery, uh, where he led the research and development program. So he's super creative and super meticulous, and he's the one who works the magic. So I send these unique Texas junipers off to him after a process of getting them ready to go, and he's the one who has figured out this wonderful combination of botanicals to highlight these Texas junipers in unique ways to, in both our Western-style gin, which is called Wild June, which features the red berry juniper, as well as our checkerbark American dry style gin, which features the alligator or checkerbark juniper. And we have that both in our dry style and we also have an aged version of that gin as well. Oh, that's so Matt amazing. is our head distiller. And then at District Distilling Company, we are not only a distillery, we are actually a distillery, restaurant, and bar all in one, a combination okay. enterprise. And that's really rare in the United States. And it's coming on board um, as local laws change. And my brother, Michael Cummings, we are one of, um, he and I are two of six siblings that are co-owners of this establishment. He's actually been critical in, in changing local Washington, D.C. laws to allow us to be uh, 
an all-in-one enterprise, so to be a producer of spirits and selling directly to the consumer. So we have this restaurant, and we have this fantabulous chef. Our executive chef is Justin Bittner. He's a talented um, and award-winning chef. He also has a, a lo- his own family farm. So he's been a leader in the farm-to-table movement um, in the D.C. area, and so he often features unique elements from his farm on our seasonal menu. So he's been wonderful. And then in addition to Justin, we have um, a newly minted uh, CEO, uh, Owen Connors. I was happy to hear you welcome Ireland to this program because (laughs) Owen comes to us as a native of Ireland, um, and he's been fantastic. He has a great wealth of, of experience um, in the spirits um, world from Ireland, England, France, Scotland, and across the United States. And so we're really excited to have him on board. And so um, those team members, along with my sibling co-owners uh, together, we're just, we're quite an extended family that is really committed to quality and uniqueness in our products. It sounds like such a great team and what a wonderful thing to share with your siblings and also thank you for sharing a little bit about District Distilling Company. As I was chatting with uh, our guests today on the farm who are visiting us from Washington, D.C., and I mentioned your gin, Wild June Gin, and I also mentioned District Distilling Company, and they were familiar with with your restaurant. Yeah, which was wonderful. And um, what you're doing is so incredible, and your Wild June Gin, I know, has been a really big success, and that has a lot to do with those special junipers that you forage there in Fort Davis, Texas. The before we go to break, Molly, I'm curious, how would you how would you describe the difference between the checker bark juniper and the redberry juniper in a nutshell? What would be their distinct flavors? Oh, very simple. So the checker bark or alligator juniper is very aromatic. So, you know, it's got this really strong aromatic um I wouldn't quite say bitterness, but the pine aromatic aroma, whereas the red berry juniper is juicy, it is tart, and almost cranberry-like in taste, and so, okay. and then it's got a sweetness to it, so very, very different flavor profiles entirely. Oh, got it, and... I'm curious too, as you, before you send these berries, juniper berries to Matt Strickland, I know you kind of, from your sort of science biological side to you, you sort of are testing and experimenting, sort of testing levels of ripeness and blanching and dehydrating on your end. Um, Quickly before we go, before we go to break, Molly, tell us how that experimentation is going, please. Oh, <laughs> well, the first year was the most uh, adventuresome because I had no idea what ripeness level would make the best gin. So I was collecting junipers at all different stages and marking them by color, uh, which was a proxy for ripeness. And then I had all these different levels of preparation and dehydration and blanching. And so it's a good thing being a biologist. I'm used to doing copious <laughs> notes and keeping everything in categories. And I would send these off to Matt and he would let me know definitely not that stage definitely this stage and so that's going well um, but it 
you know, if anyone's interested in wild foraging, I do recommend just going out and getting books on the topic um, and yes. figuring out, you know, local edible plants. And some of the best books come from uh, folklore and Native American culture. So there are great books out there that talk about Native American um, plants used for medicine and for food. And that's actually the first stop I went to to determine whether or not some of these unique berries were edible or not. Um, and so I highly recommend people kind of backing up their hunches um, with some good research before That's proceeding. That's a great, great suggestion, Molly. And it's just been so interesting to hear how you how you, your professor times, what you're working on, as well as some of your weekend times and being part of District Distilling Company, how that all goes. It's really all so inspiring. We're really thankful that you've been sharing with us. And when we come back from the break, listeners, please join us. We're going to talk a little bit more with Dr. Molly Cummings about um, some of the current projects that are going on at District Distilling Company there in Washington, D.C., and a little bit more about what makes their gin, uh, Wild June Gin, distinctly more um, uniquely American versus some of the other gins that are out there right after the break. Please join us. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com My favorite coffee story is brought to you by Anikona Farm, where every bean we grow represents a great story somewhere in the world. When you buy coffee from Anikona Farm, you're investing in new memories, stories, and experiences. We harvest our beans with your future story in our heart. So, from our heart to yours, enjoy the Anikona experience. May your coffee story be as rich and delicious as our Kona coffee with love. Please visit Anikona.com and get your Anikona Story coffee special today. Voice America Network proudly presents the Catherine Zox Show for women, men, children, and families. Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern to the Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America channel. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to My Favorite Coffee Story with Aniko Samoji. Drop us a line and share your story. Our email address is orders at anikona.com. Again, that's orders at anikona.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back to My Favorite Coffee Story. What a great time we're having with Dr. Molly E. Cummings, who's a biology professor at the University of Texas and also a co-owner at District Distilling Company in Washington, D.C., and we're sharing stories about the berry with another spirit, the juniper berry, and it's been fun to chat with you, Molly, about all your marine research that you're doing and how that's also very applicable to some of our even more 
uh, human questions about behavior, et cetera. And we were just chatting about how you experiment with the juniper berries, you know, the level of ripeness and the blanching and dehydrating before you send to your master distiller, Matt Strickland, over at District Distilling. And that was really fun to hear about the team and um, what a great team you have. What are some of the current projects that you're doing over there at District Distilling? Well, we're always interested in developing seasonal. So I should back up and point out that we do more than gin at District Distilling. Um, in fact, for, to make a gin, you re, you need to have a base neutral grain spirit. And for that, we actually use our vodka. Um, we produce vodka, gin, rum. Uh, we blend bourbon on premise and we're laying down our whiskeys and we also have seasonal spirits like creme de menthe we just came out with and so we're always kind of as i mentioned before our distiller our head distiller matt strickland has a real creative air to him and so he's got lots of ideas going on in fact one of the ideas that our 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 new ceo and president owen connors has put together actually is inspired by your coffee um story and it ends up that coffee and gin is kind of the new leading or leading the edge or leading the wave of new coffee flavors in, in Europe. And uh, we just were, became aware of one of the European barista challenges. The winner made a gin coffee. <laughs> and so we've been inspired wow. to put together a gin and coffee cocktail for our brunch, brunch menu, for our spring brunch menu. Um, coming up at District Distilling Company in a, in a week or two. So that's one of the new things. You don't tend to think of coffee and gin, but it might become the new wave. And in fact, I do believe that Starbucks is um, putting together a gin-flavored coffee uh, cold brew. So you never know. You heard it here first. It could be oh, that's the great. drink. <laughs> well, and you know, we'd be so happy to share some of our wonderful Kona coffee here from the farm if you would like to have a kind oh, of a of Kona, Kona flavor with the gin. I think that would be a fun project. Thank you for mentioning Absolutely. that. Absolutely. I've heard a little bit about this and how aging in certain barrels that have some of the flavors of gin or some of the other spirits can really um, make a wonderful beverage. So keep us posted, please, on how that's going. Can't wait to hear. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and that's mm-hmm. a is that something that Matt Strickland is is um, inspiring and, and researching and and. Uh, what are some of the other projects? It sounds like you have quite a few. I didn't realize you also have other spirits. How fun. Oh, yes. No, we're, we're constant. Well, I shouldn't say constantly, but <clears throat> excuse me. Seasonally, we like to highlight uh, new spirits. And we do some of these spirits on, in small batches. We call it Embassy Row. And so in the future, we're definitely uh, one of the goals from the get-go has to been to produce a coffee liqueur. And so we definitely should collaborate on that because we're really, we're a a coffee drinking family and we like our stimulants. So (laughs) a coffee liqueur is kind of right up our alley. Um, And especially having Irish roots, you know, I've, I've always loved, in fact, my road to alcohol, I think was uh, the Irish coffee plan. So (laughs) okay. First loving coffee and then loving creamy coffee, I started off with Irish coffees and that led me to other 
alcohol. <laughs> so, wow, um, but some so of the fun. other projects, we're, we're always changing um, our food menu. And the other thing we're working on is pairing, kind of turning the the food with alcohol pairing on its head. If you think about when you go out to a restaurant and you have a really fine meal and the sommelier might might suggest a specific wine pairing with your meal. Well, right. at District Distilling Company, we would like to turn that a little bit 180 degrees. So if you want to order a wonderful um, cocktail from our bar that features any number of our, of our spirits, we can then suggest to you a specific set of tapas or small plates that would highlight the flavors in our cocktails. So it's a little different approach to food and beverage um, and food and spirits, but we're thinking it makes a lot of sense. Oh, sounds perfect. And I'm curious, too, when you're asked how you like your gin served, is it my understanding that you like it on the rocks? I do. Uh, Truth be told, I was never a gin snob before I took on this wild foraging gin adventure. Um, But I have become one because our gin is that good. (laughs) So whether I'm drinking our checkerbark, our dry style gin, or our uh, wild june, our western style gin, or our checkerbark barrel rested, which is our aged gin, we age our checkerbark in used bourbon barrels for six months. Um, The first way I like to have them all is simply on the rocks because I think they highlight their beautiful complexity. But... When I'm in a bit of a wilder mood, I will take our Wild June Western-style gin, and I will add some fresh watermelon to her, and then add, kind of top her off with ice, Wild June, and Topo Chico, or any kind of fancy sparkling water, and with a little mint garnish, and she is just so refreshing that way. Um, Just a gorgeous, uh, refreshing drink. Um, And then for our Checker Bark, our American Dry, um, she, she, he, I actually view Checkerbark as more of our male pairing to our Wild June as our female uh, starring gin. So, yes. <laughs> kind of like the James Bond. Um, <laughs> so he makes a great martini. Um, and then, of course, our aged uh, Checkerbark makes a wonderful old fashioned if you're into that. Okay. My family, growing up in Wisconsin, we were all bourbon old fashioned drinkers. It's quite a favorite drink in Wisconsin and our family it's our staple and so in fact pretty much I think that's the was the inspiration to start a distillery is that we all loved our old fashions oh I see oh thank you for sharing that I I think that's really fun I'm curious about um, adding some of those spices and some of the citrus that you add to your gin to make it a big gin, as you say, Western Mm -hmm. style. How is that, if you could describe, how is that different from, let's say, gin that you might try, um, like in Europe or or something, uh, like a tanqueray? How how would you describe the difference, please? Sure. So... First, I'll start with the most important distinct feature, and that is 98% of all gins in the world use the exact same juniper species, and that's the common juniper. And that is because um, in order to be a gin, you have to have juniper as your lead botanical. That's part of the definition of a gin. And in Europe, 
um, where gin originated. Gin originated in the Netherlands and then became super popular in the UK shortly after that. And in Europe, there's really only one species of palatable juniper, and that's called the common juniper. And so most of the gins in the world, 90, I would say 95 to 98% of them, are all using the same exact juniper species. But here okay. in America, we have a number of different species of junipers. And in Texas alone, we have eight different species. And so that was the inspiration to, to develop uniquely American gins. We wanted a uniquely American juniper to be our highlighted feature of our gins. And so we started off in search of the alligator juniper because the name was just too precious and yes. uh, invigorating. We had to go find it. And I heard caught wind that it was found in the Davis Mountains. So that was my first tree hunt. Uh, searching for the alligator juniper, which is also called the checkerbark juniper because the bark of the tree is very much like alligator skin. And so I started um, foraging for that. And in the process of foraging for that and finding it and figuring out what ripeness stage, I started noticing these other junipers in the region, including the redberry juniper. And I was so enthralled at how unique the redberry juniper was that I was asking our distiller to try to make a, uh, another gin. And so going to your original question, what's the difference between a dry style gin versus a Western style gin? Dry refers to the narrowness of the flavor profile. So in a gin, the reason why there's so many gins in the world is you could constantly change the variables because as long as you have a neutral grain spirit as the base and juniper botanical uh, as the lead botanical, you can keep adding different botanicals. So there's a lot okay. of different combinations out there. And so the dry styles only have a few botanicals. And so the juniper is very strong in the flavoring. It's a juniper forward style gin. And that's what the vast majority of Europe drinks, um, and particularly in the UK. Meanwhile, a Western style gin refers to a broader botanical base. And so for instance, if you compare our gins, our American dry style gin has five botanicals, uh, two different junipers, the common juniper with the alligator or checkerbark juniper as an accent, and yes. then a citrus and coriander and angelica. And so there's just five different botanicals with our per unique juniper adding a specific zing to it, making it an, an amazing martini. Meanwhile, our Western style gin has 11 different botanicals, and this is the gin that features the red berry juniper, that sweeter, tart, cranberry-like, really unique juniper. But in addition to that, Matt Strickland, our distiller, uh, made this wonderful combination of botanicals. He added two different uh, citrus peels, lemon and orange. He added hops, which you don't usually associate with a gin. And he added my particular favorite spice that complements it all out, cinnamon, which warms the palate oh, at the end yes. of having... And it's just a spectacular gin. So when I went over to London um, in the fall and went to some tastings, the Brits were blown away at how unique a flavor a gin this was. And they really know their gins. I mean, they are the connoisseurs of yes. gin. They are the, the most sophisticated gin drinking culture on the planet. And so when we were getting high accolades from those gin drinkers, I knew that we had something truly special. 
Well, you do, definitely. And I love how you're finding these unique species of junipers and so excited for you as you discover some new ones as you forage. Dr. Molly, before we close, I'd love to ask you one last question about your upcoming travels, a little bit about um, maybe your favorite scuba place in the world. Oh, oh I've had so I've been such a fortunate soul. I've been able to go yes. a number of places. So yeah. I'm going to just throw out a few, a number of favorites. I love the Great Barrier Reef. I hope it continues to be the Great Barrier Reef. Yes. Um, but I love that. Um, I also recently, last year, had the good fortune of going to dive in Corsica in the Mediterranean, which was absolutely beautiful. I also love um, the Caribbean, some of the places there, the Bahamas, were spectacular. I've just been a very lucky person and I'm just grateful I've been able to see our world underwater in so many different places. Oh, definitely. And we're so grateful to you, Dr. Molly, for sharing your amazing, inspiring stories about your research there at the University of Texas, um, what it's like being a biology professor, all the interesting things you're discovering about animal behavior and communication traits and their camouflage. Just fascinating. We're so grateful to you for joining us today. Thank you so much. And we wish you all the best as you continue um, fun projects over there at District Distilling. So all the best, Molly, and thanks again. And to our listeners, we're so glad you've joined us today. We've had another wonderful time sharing favorite coffee stories. We shared about the berry with another spirit today and also some fun coffee stories along the way. We also love to share our Anikona coffee. At, um, certainly we have our 15% gift, and we love continuing the conversation at radio at myfavoritecoffeestory.com. Thanks again for being with us this week, and we look forward to being together again next week on My Favorite Coffee Story. In the meantime, we wish you a wonderful aloha. Thank you for taking an hour out of your busy week to join us on My Favorite Coffee Story. Please tune in again for another edition with your host, Aniko Samoji, next Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until then, we hope you'll have a relaxing week 